morning. We are continuing a series that Pastor Allison started last week. And it is all about the values that define the Free Methodist Church. And so these values um, define our denomination. And denomination is really just a fancy way of saying we're connected to something bigger than us. So we are one church in a story of many churches. All across the U.S., all across um, the nations, the Free Methodist Church in Asia is growing at a rapid rate. Um, there are churches all over the world. And so two of the areas that we focus in outside of Lewis County uh, are Latin America and Asia. And so our church supports the Asia area directors and the Latin American area directors. We also give to a fund called the EMP, and it's the Extra Mile Project, which means that like the Latin America area directors get to say, hey, we have a church that needs a roof this week. We have a pastor that can't feed his family. We have, and so they take that fund, the EMP, and they dish it out to the missionaries and the church planters and the people that need it the most when they need it. And so we set up to give to that fund because we also said we don't live in Latin America. And so you're going to know where you need the most help. And so we uh, give also to that fund as a church. Part of what everyone gives goes there. Um, and so that allows us to be involved in a story bigger than us. And this series is really about the story that's bigger than us when it comes to theology. And so what this series is breaking down is sort of theological views that the whole story of the Free Methodist Church holds. And in the Free Methodist Church, we call these theological values. Um, they are different than our values, which I listed up here as our church. We have worship, we have biblical teaching, we have community outreach, family support, serve teams, and discipleship groups, which mean those are the primary areas that we focus in on. And so we've preached on community, we had series on friendship, and we have groups. There's a groups wall in the back you can do. We talk about serve teams all the time. Um, those are all parts of our regular conversations. We do outreach Sundays. And so this series is about diving into that biblical teaching value, and we're diving into theology. And so last week, Pastor Allison tackled love-driven justice, and she did an amazing job kicking off this series and addressing like just a really core and fundamental topic to what we believe, justice, and, and sort of how that ties into our story and how we are to be justice-oriented with love first. So if you missed it, go on YouTube, go on Spotify, listen to it. But today we're going to jump into our value of life-giving holiness. This is a sort of bigger-than-us story of theological views. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're going to start by defining a couple terms. Life-giving is the first term we're going to define. It equals this concept of invigorating and powerful. And I would say most of us have a context in our life where we know if something is life-giving. And so life-giving is invigorating and powerful. And then there's holiness. Holiness is devotion to a loving God. So life-giving holiness is an invigorating and powerful relationship with the God of love. And this is a really, really valuable conversation to have because we have a tendency to forget that the only thing in the Bible that it really truly says that God is, is love. God is not theology. 
God is not denominations. God is not systems or certain belief styles or veins. God is love. So we're going to jump into 1 John 4, 7, and we're going to read about the love that is God and how that picture includes us. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another and God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So if God is love and life-giving holiness is an invigorating and powerful relationship with the God of love, then the opposite of life-giving holiness is a life-draining religion. Because if life-giving holiness is about relationship and religion is not about relationship, then the opposite of life-giving holiness is life-draining religion. And at some point in all of our lives, we've met this God of love and our responses to our own failures and our own mistakes and our responses to the failures and mistakes that other people make and the differences that they have in what they believe and think and how they function. At some point, there's so much compassion. Because when we just meet Jesus, we feel the compassion that he gives us. And we take all of the weight of our own sin and our own imperfections, and it just floats off of us because we've met Jesus. And this God of love becomes so incredibly apparent that we begin to extend all this compassion. We see other people with compassion. And as we're driven to be close to God, out of that comes love. Not just a greater love we can extend to our own selves in the form of grace and compassion, but to everyone else. And that sounds amazing. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the entire church just functioned like that 100% of the time? And we were just all grace-filled, compassionate, loving people who were in love with the God of love. And as a result, we extended all of that grace and compassion to everyone around us. 
But let's figure out how at some point we get from that life-giving holiness filled with love and compassion to the opposite, which is the life-draining religion. But first, let's look at what holiness is. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Hebrews 12.14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. The challenge that we run into in every single theological vein, any denomination that you may have been a part of, even if you've been a part of this one since day one of your faith, the challenge with every theological movement is that we all run the risk, because we are human, of taking some something too far. And it's not just an individual, it's a movement. And so every movement, every denomination, every gathering of believers has something that they've taken too far. And we could probably point out everybody else's things that they've taken too far, but today we're going to look at our own things that our movement has taken too far. And words like purify and contaminate and perfecting are really intense words. And so it makes sense that we read that and then we take them too far. Because they're immediately intense words that invoke a reaction or a response from us. And as believers in Jesus, who at one point were filled with love and compassion as we dove headfirst into a relationship with the God of love, eventually in our scripture reading, in our processing of theology, with a little bit too much intensity and too little context, we get led in the direction of more religion and less relationship. Because here's an important note for today's discussion. Rules multiply. So Bishop Linda Adams explains it like this. At some point in the Free Methodist story, we started with life-giving holiness. Free Methodism was born out of two of the greatest rules you could have. No buying and selling of humans. It was at the height of slavery. And there's a reason that free Methodists are intensely involved with the sex trafficking movement to stop it. And that's why we have set free. And we have a big push towards ending the human slavery that we have today. That's because it's deep in our DNA, in our veins. Free Methodism was born out of not wanting to be a part of anything that looked like slavery, which is so amazing and so wonderful. And then there was one other rule at that time, and it was that you couldn't sell your pews. So churches had taken sort of a, a, a space where they had decided that if you had a lot of money, you could sit in the front and we would clean your pews. And then as the further you moved back, the less probably clean your pews would be and the less money you had. And then if you didn't have any money, you could come stand in the back. And so Free Methodists said, uh, we don't want that either. We are, we are going to be free. 
free humans and free pews. Free all of it. Free. And so there were these rules. But then later on, while these rules were incredible, later on out came a book with some more rules. And that book was the Code of Christian Conduct and Behavior. And so early in the Free Methodist story, there became a whole list of rules. And they were stifling. Policing what you wear, policing how you think, whether or not you could do certain things, what you needed to look like, how you needed to function, your behavior to your looks. And that book was written for Christians, full of all of these rules. And and what maybe we think would happen is that someone would read it and they would say, well, okay, I can change the way I dress and I can change my hair and, and, and I'll do these things. But what we know about faith and community is that it never happens in isolation. And we do not tend to read things like that and prescribe those rules to only us. We read something like that, and first, we prescribe the rules to everyone else. And then at some point, we go, okay, maybe I'll adopt this one and this one, but everybody else needs to do all of these. And so, how we handle rules impacts the community we're with, and we often prescribe rules to the community first. And rules are predisposed to multiply. And a multiplication of rules becomes religion. And religion turns people into gatekeepers of the kingdom. Gatekeeping. It is a trendy word right now, and I love it for this discussion because it makes so much sense. But gatekeeping is the activity of controlling and or limiting general access to something. So think about a book that tells you how you have to dress. And if you are someone who has no money to buy clothing, you cannot now go to church. So a rule about what you need to wear becomes gatekeeping. It's controlling or limiting the access to something. And in this case, we become gatekeepers of the kingdom. And this goes beyond just having a list because you might be thinking, well, this is a great discussion because Cook's Hill doesn't have a book. We don't have a list of Cook's Hill's code of conduct and code of dress and code of how you think. We don't have a book, no, but the thing is, rules tend to exist in your DNA. So by this point in our history, we don't need a book. They just all live up here, and we store them, and we think this is what someone should be wearing, or this is what someone should be doing, or someone shouldn't have certain tattoos, or shouldn't have certain things. And, and, and it doesn't matter who you are and how you think and how you function. If we sit in a space where those rules are in our DNA, We may not say, you can't come here because, I mean, that would be ridiculous. Most people do not go up to people and say, you can't go here because X. We simply look at them with judgment, or we move our seat, or we see them coming to sit next to us, and we kind of just like, like, we kind of do it just even within our community in very subtle ways. And so we're not talking about the list of rules that we'll find in a book that you can download from the website. 
That does not exist. We're talking about our subtlety. The less obvious, the expressions, the feel. Because the Free Methodist story at some point in its history took a legalistic turn. And that means it can run in our DNA. And so we have to acknowledge it and address it and consistently come back to looking at our own behaviors and how we function. Rules multiply and push us to become gatekeepers of the kingdom. And humans will never outgrow the temptation to be human and make really dumb decisions and do really dumb things and say really dumb things. And if you're sitting here going, I have never said or done anything dumb, um, then I have news for you. Um, And we have it in us to be sinful. And the clarification in all of these scriptures about purification and, and contamination is never about what we prescribe to someone else, but about our relationship with God. Not that our relationship with God has to be perfect, but that we are always in relationship with God learning, growing, working to become more like Jesus, letting him fill us with his joy, his hope, his peace, his compassion. A life centered on holiness is not a perfect life. It's a life in relationship with the God of love. So as free Methodists, we are taking back life-giving holiness from life-draining religion. And that is what we are doing. We are taking it back. And this is so much of what Jesus was addressing with the Pharisees. We've been through so much of the New Testament in the last two years. And so if you've been with us on that journey, we have regularly come back to this place where we said the Pharisees made all these rules and they thought that they were the best that had ever come and that they were God's favorite. And yet as you go through scripture, the most harsh words that are ever spoken in scripture are spoken to the Pharisees who knew the rules, and who prescribed the rules. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills and the Spirit brings life. As a church, we want to be life-giving And we want our devotion to the God of love, our relationship with the God of love to be life-giving. But in order to do that, we have to take a couple of steps. And the first one is that we have to explore and admit our own life-draining theology that leads to gatekeeping. This might be that somewhere deeply ingrained in you, you believe that tattoos are wrong. But what you may not know is that that belief is seeping out. Even though you may never say to someone that you think they made a mistake, what we believe as a rule seeps out and becomes gatekeeping. And so we have to go on a journey to explore our own life-draining theology that leads us to gatekeeping. And every single person's theology gets additions throughout life because rules multiply. So what might have started as a really good one for you, that you felt like Jesus gave you, 
and that you needed to do a certain thing. Maybe it was reading your Bible every morning and you felt like for you, you were supposed to read your Bible every single morning and then it sort of became, well, everyone else is supposed to read their Bible every morning. And so now when someone doesn't read their Bible every single morning, well, they're not as good as I am. And so what we need to do is explore what we've added to our relationship with God. And sometimes what this means is that the longer we follow Jesus, the more additions we have. And so maybe that means that we have to deconstruct. We have to separate things from the movements and from the communities and from the people that we've been a part of from the things of Jesus. And we have to strip a few of the additions in terms of rules that we have applied and ask some questions like, did I at some point begin to believe that my marriage is less sinful than someone else's? Did I at some point begin to believe that piercings are a problem? Some of these are obvious examples, and you're sitting here going, of course I don't have an issue with that. Did I at some point confuse my preferences with Jesus' preferences? Did I at some point begin to care more about things like paint colors and hairstyles and outfits than the gospel? And what of those thoughts do I need to shed? Because even if I'm not saying them out loud, they are seeping out into the community. Do I think of someone else as less holy than I think of myself based on their appearance or their specific sin issues? So we need to explore our own life-draining religion that has crept in and stolen some of our life-giving holiness. And often there's a good, a good process for this that I use to regularly deconstruct the rules that I've added to my own life, even if I've never written them down, but I just have a tendency to think because they've sort of been piled on. And, and there's two, and I just use these as like, they're probably not like the greatest theology examples ever. So like just umbrella of grace here as I explain, like two of my own processes that may or may not be helpful for you and or may or may not be theologically the most sound. But they, they work for me, and I, and I want to share them this morning. One of them is called the heaven test. It already sounds bad, doesn't it? Yeah, I know, but it's okay. So the heaven test, it sounds silly, but, but I think through this often. I think through something that feels like a rule to me. And I think to myself, if it's not what gives me heaven, then it cannot be what gives them hell. So if it is not the thing that saves me, then it can't be the thing that does the opposite for them. So if how I look and what I wear and who I am and what I believe in certain categories has no bearing on salvation, then it can't have a bearing on their salvation. The other one is called the thief on the cross theology. And if you've been a part of a denomination or a movement for a really long time, this one's good. Because if you think about the thief on the cross, he was never baptized. He never took communion. He was not ever, as a believer in Jesus, wearing clothing. 
He didn't look, dress, think, or function a certain way. And he had never read the Bible. He had never done a devotion in his life. So how does the thief on the cross fit into my theology of how I think my community should look? It's an important question, and it's an exploratory question. And so as you go out from here this week, as we wrap up this morning, I want you to ask that question, how does the thief on the cross fit into my theology? How does the thief on the cross fit into my church? How does the thief on the cross fit into my family? And the second thing is that we need to invite the Holy Spirit to fill us with love. Without love, it doesn't really matter what we do. It's in the Bible. None of it matters if we don't do it with love. And if God is love, then we should also be love. But we don't become more love by trying harder. We don't become more of God's love by entering into a space and and burning our rule book and saying, I'm going to love people today. It's simply not how we become love. We become love by being filled with the Holy Spirit and inviting the God of love to fill us with love. And so this morning as we go into our uh, song and time of reflection, I want to leave us with the encouragement to pursue that invitation. That invitation to invite the God of love to fill us with love.